Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome, everyone, to episode 16 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the sixth of season two. This one is all about Queen Tristan I of Anaquist, known as Tristan the Poisoner. First, the overview. Tristan was daughter of Arfina I and sister of the two previous monarchs, Blemon and Ascot. She was born in 260, takes the throne in 288, age 28, and reigns until 298, when she dies, age 38. Tristan's another of the so-called youngling monarchs, qualifying mostly because she was under the age of 30 when she was crowned, I think. She had five children, none surviving beyond the age of three. And I'm betting that regular listeners to this podcast are immediately thinking, five children, none living long, more succession shenanigans for sure, and they'd be right. So get ready for a bumpy ride. Now, after a useful reminder from a listener and subscriber, Gary Abishag in Clincurry, I need to point out that some of these titles I've used for the monarchs of Anaquist, like Blemon the Lucky, aren't actually official. A number of these nicknames were well established in their lifetime. Some came about after they died, and some are simply colourful, snappy titles I've used to catch your attention. Tristan the Poisoner is one of those, and a bit of a giveaway as to what's to come. If we want to get technical, these names are a cognomen when it comes after a monarch's name, something like Blemon the Lucky, and it's a sobriquet when it replaces the monarch's name, like when the Lady in the Mask was used for Queen Ascot I. If you've learned something by that, that's the sort of high-value content that this podcast strives for. Well worth subscribing to, liking and talking enthusiastically to your friends about. Back to Tristan. A ten-year reign gives us plenty to explore, especially compared to the last few monarchs whose reigns were over and done with in the blink of an eye, so to speak. But let's start with how she became queen. The Succession Tristan's succession was a murky one, shaded in murk all over. If we remember, her mother, Queen Varfina I, 256 to 279, chose a successor by lot back in 254, and Tristan's brother, Blemon, was the lucky winner. Now, Tristan was a typical anarchist in that she had what you might call a healthy sense of self-worth, and she maintained that she should have been chosen by her mother simply because she was the most talented, a claim which naturally was disputed by her siblings. When Queen Vafina would have none of it, Tristan removed herself from Anaquist to her country estate and used it as a base for extended-scale hunting expeditions in the interior, a time when she made the acquaintance of a number of rogue adepts and visionaries who shaped her ambitions, as we shall see later. She also added to her considerable fortune and became an important player in the scale markets, something she used to gather support. It was while she was far away on one of these expeditions that her brother King Blemon died unexpectedly in 284, and by the time she returned, her sister 
Ascot had ensconced herself on the throne with the backing of the temple. Tristan seethed, but her support base was not as it would be later, and she could do nothing at the time. Nothing obvious, anyway. Ascot didn't just have the backing of the temple, either. Blemen's advisory council, seeing the way the wind was blowing, declared she had their backing, which meant that the military fell in line, and, mostly, the aristocratic families came alongside too. At this early time in Anarchist history, guilds and trade associations were barely beginning, so they weren't a factor. Tristan was definitely in no position to challenge for the throne. After Ascot's coronation in spring, 285, Tristan took to her country estate again, and to judge from what happened later, she put some considerable time in planning an ascent to the throne, despite the fact that her sister had a young son, Hotch, who was already in the way. Tristan bided her time, plotted, cultivated allies, and took care of the basics, because the fundamental things apply as time goes by. Ascot's death in 287 at the age of 28 from indigestion was unexpected and she had made no efforts to designate her four-year-old son Hotch as her official heir. This gave Tristan the opportunity she'd been waiting for. Now, this following account I've put together mostly from the surviving records of this advisory council, even though they require some really keen reading between the lines. Also, I've used Dromka's The Monarchs of Anarchist, of course, and the writings of Caro Althef, who was a minor court official with the responsibility for window coverings. She wrote something of a diary, something of an autobiography, detailing her life in the Anarchistian palace in this late second, early third century period. She witnessed some important events, but she also relied on the reports of friends and acquaintances in the palace for others. So it's a very useful text. Immediately after Ascot's death, presenting herself as the concerned aunt, Tristan addressed the advisory council and argued that it would be cruel to install Hotch as monarch, even with a regent to do the actual ruling until he came of age. What the realm needed, she argued, was someone who had been trained for leadership, someone old enough to understand the gravity of the position, someone with a name that the people could trust. Two advisory council members were unconvinced, Melsing Tabber and Zoran Excom. Both argued that a regency council was the answer instead of one person being appointed to the throne. Now, this actually was a clever move, as it had a precedent. King the I's mother, Queen Sendia I, died when he was only two years old. His father led a regency council made up of trusted nobles until Sain was 20, and the transition from a regency to Sain's true monarchy was a smooth one, so Tabba and Excom had history on their side. Of course, Tristan wasn't in favour of this, even when Tabba and Excom suggested that she head the Regency Council. Months of wrangling ensued as Tristan sought to bring the remaining members of the Advisory Council to her way of thinking, as well as seeking support from other nobles, the army and the temple. Tabba and Excom did likewise, lobbying extensively. The nine other members of the Council considered the situation carefully, at all times keeping the best interest of Anarchist foremost in their minds. Yeah, yeah, just joking. 
The remaining council members vacillated, their decision-making based on a combination of fear and self-interest. Promises were made by both sides, things like riches, land, titles, important positions, as were hints of revealing secrets the council members would really prefer remain hidden. And then, of course, there were the ever-popular threats of bodily harm and or death. Politics in Anarchist was never less than robust, after all. What was shaping up as a real standoff was resolved when Tabra and Excom both died, unexpectedly, within hours of each other from indigestion. When news of these deaths reached the other council members, a meeting was hastily arranged in the palace and the council declared that it would support Tristan as the new Queen of Anarchist, after which all of them immediately went on a meditation and fasting retreat leagues and leagues away from the palace. Tristan accepted their support, feigning reluctance and declaring she was only doing it for the good of the realm. This, of course, put infant Hotch, Ascot's son, the true heir, in an awkward if not dangerous position. Many in Anaquist saw him as the real king, and this sort of thing was an obvious source of discontent and, possibly, rebellion in the future. Tristan couldn't have been unaware of this, and, as such... Fears were held for Hotch, suffering the same sort of indigestion that killed his mother. And here's where some of the murk that shrouds Ascot's death and Tristan's accession gets murkier, because little Hotch disappears. After Ascot's death, Hotch had remained in the royal nursery, attended by the squad of nannies and attendants who had taken care of him since his birth. But as soon as the announcement was made of the advisory council's decision to back Tristan as the new monarch, the infant vanished. In the traditional and unfortunately brutal questioning of the nursery staff afterwards, a consistent account emerged. Someone declaring himself to be Hotch's father had come to visit his son, and after a distraction, or multiple distractions, witness accounts vary here, both father and son were no longer to be found. An explanation here. Ascot had never revealed who Hotch's father was, and there was no Anaquistian tradition, custom or law that said she needed to. Anaquistian mothers were entitled to make the father's name public or keep it to herself, whichever suited her. The man who visited the royal nursery on the day Hotch disappeared was well known to staff and had previously been introduced to them as Hotch's father. Hence, they're letting him see the royal child. But they had never been told the name of the good-looking, polite and very charming man. Upon hearing news of Hotch's disappearance, Tristan ordered the palace guard and the army to find the infant and bring him back to the palace. Despite great efforts, combing the stronghold, Lowtown, Beacon, Mirror and the countryside for miles, no trace was found of Prince Hotch and his presumed father. On the one hand, this meant that when Tristan was crowned a week after the disappearance, she had no rival claimant to the throne, at least none that was in the public eye. On the other hand, a potential claimant was perhaps out there somewhere, and who knows where that could lead. As they say, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, and Tristan, being of a suspicious and wary nature anyway, found that her head was very, very uneasy indeed. Prince Hotch's disappearance provided the opportunity for another outbreak of pretenders, and a number of unscrupulous people thrust forward young children, 
claiming they were Hodge, looking for support or simply money to go away. Queen Tristan gave them all very, very short shrift. Rain highlights. And so Queen Tristan finally got down to the business of ruling. When you look past the murky matter of the succession and the disappearance of young Hotch, Tristan's rule was fairly unremarkable. She was a steady hand on the tiller for ten years, and while Anarchus didn't boom, it certainly didn't decline. It was a period of steady slow growth and general stability. The Caronite heresy, having been crushed, went underground. A few purges and examples were made by the temple, and the adherents mostly fled Anarchist after that, so all was fairly quiet on the religious front. Two events late in Tristan's reign are notable, though, and worth spending some time on. The first of these is the Harlandale disaster of 297. Harlandale was once a small village on the road from Anarchist to Beacon, the river port on the Miro River. At the time of Tristan's succession, it was unremarkable. A sometime wayside stop for travellers on their way to or from the river port. A few years into Tristan's reign, however, she put money into buying land in and around this tiny village, and soon construction was proceeding apace, and the beginnings of a very special copper mine were established just to the north of the village. To backtrack a little, after King Blemon's death and the crowning of Queen Ascot I in 284, Tristan had isolated herself at her country estate, but she hadn't spent this time in idleness. Apart from planning her grab for the throne, she'd been spending much time in magical studies. Her expeditions into the interior and the central wilderness in search of scales had brought her wealth, but she had also returned with a number of extraordinary followers. Some were battle-hardy warriors, but she also brought a handful of outlandish magical adepts with her. The deserts of the interior are classic sites for heaven falls and heaven watchers, and many prospectors also go out in search of scales, despite the harsh and unforgiving conditions. Some of these people base their expeditions on previous reports or even sightings by heaven watchers, but a very few have a magical awareness an affinity for the unearthly, and are drawn towards it by this sensibility. Of these few, some actually find something, and a tiny, tiny minority of these stay out there in the lonely wilderness with their finds and getting closer and closer to understanding them. It's often said that these sun-baked adepts have had their brains addled by the heat and the light and the lack of water. Others say that they spend too much time communing with scales and other heavenly objects, and their brains aren't addled, but curdled by the raw power. Regardless, in these early days, some of these visionaries had eccentric ideas about magic and its uses. They found a ready audience in Tristan, soon to be Queen Tristan. The venture at Harlandale was an experiment prompted by some of Tristan's new magical consultants. Anarchist already had ready sources of copper, with several major copper mines in the far east of the realm, near the mountains, but nevertheless, Tristan encouraged, by her magical inner circle, she wanted to test whether magical excavation was a quicker, cheaper method of mining compared to the laborious task of mining by hand. She thought it could revolutionise the extraction of mineral wealth. Following the telltale traces of copper around Harlandale, Several shafts and excavations were dug by hand to allow access, 
and an area to experiment with these theories of magical excavation. The exact method was lost in the disaster in the aftermath, but piecing matters together, it seems as if the adepts from Tristan's magical inner circle had trialled combinations of scales in an extremely unorthodox fashion, with several of these arrangements effectively strung together in a twisted and possibly a spiral shape. The theory was that this cumbersome magical device could be wielded almost like a broom, and it would sweep aside rock and earth, making it vanish completely with each stroke, sent who knows where. At least, that was the theory. Much of the little evidence we have of the roots of the Harlandale disaster comes from the single-experience miner that Queen Triston had employed as part of this project. Wamala Chi was an experienced mine supervisor from the northeast and had been paid a great deal of gold to advise on the basics of mine construction. She kept a journal where she noted that her reluctance to be involved in this venture was only overcome by the extravagant payment she was offered. This journal survived the disaster when Wamala Chi didn't, and it was copied and used as a salutary lesson in poor magical principles and became part of Hypergeum teachings. Omalachi's journal expresses the opinion that while the wild-eyed adepts from the desert were enthusiastic and may have known a great deal about magic, an opinion that's actually contested in the hypergem, they didn't know squat about basic mining principles and they ignored her whenever she tried to implement some obvious safety procedures. They tended to treat all rock as the same, for instance, something she described as boneheaded and dangerous. The adepts experienced some initial success with a small chamber being excavated and no spoil created. The removal of spoil that that waste material created whenever a hole or shaft is dug is a constant problem in mining and it requires extra labour and extra effort. If a magical method could be found that avoided the creation of spoil, it would be a remarkable advance and Womalachi begrudgingly admitted as such. The actual disaster occurred on a night in the middle of the year when winter was at its coldest. Rain had been falling off and on for a few weeks, which may have contributed to the disaster, but certainly wasn't the cause. The magical adepts had taken to working in shifts, the better to impress Queen Triston, who was scheduled to inspect the workings in a few weeks' time. Underground, they had been enlarging the chamber and experimenting with opening drives, those horizontal tunnels, in a number of directions radiating from this central chamber. The first signs of the disaster came with rumbling that many in Harlandale took for thunder because of the recent weather. But as it continued and became more violent, villagers streamed out of their homes to find that the area of the experimental mine site was heaving and rippling like As Wamala Chi, who'd been living in the village, put it, an angry horse trapped under a blanket. Cries and shouts of alarm were coming from the shaft that led to the underground chamber, and Wamala Chi hurried in that direction, but at that moment, all the ground for hundreds of yards changed. The exact nature of this change is highly contested, as only a few eyewitnesses escaped, and their testimonies are naturally confused and fragmentary given the terror and the fact that it took place at night. Some spoke of giant pinnacles of rock thrusting up through the ground and collapsing again, quickly, up and down, like an unwary bell ringer attached to her rope. Others say that the area around the mine site actually spun a ragged disk of earth and rock rotating, shaking and bellowing as it did. One old man 
who was out for a midnight walk, swore that the ground turned to cheese and dropped away at his feet in an endless void. Adepts from the Hypogeum came and inspected the site the next day, along with some senior ecclesiasts from the temple and officials from the palace. The village of Harlandale had disappeared, actually swallowed up in whatever had happened. Of the mine site and the magical excavations, nothing remained. The earth in an area, a rough circle, nearly a mile in diameter, was smooth and bare, as nearly perfectly flat as anyone could tell. Later, military engineers from the army used their instruments and claimed that nothing natural could be that perfectly level. More than a hundred villages were unaccounted for, and so were the magical adepts from the interior, and also Wamala Chi, the mining engineer attached to the project. The village of Harlandale itself was swallowed up in the magical phenomenon, and the road from Anaquas to Beacon was cut, requiring hasty repairs from the aforementioned military engineers. A little debris from the village dwellings was the only sign that anything had faced the road, and it was among this debris that Wamala Chi's journal was found. Queen Tristan immediately banished her remaining magical advisers and banned any use of magic in mining, a ban that remained in place for more than a millennium and a half before it was relaxed, and the use of magic in an explosive sense was tentatively begun. Both the temple and the hypogeum officials took the opportunity to counsel Queen Tristan about the unauthorised use of magic and how regulation would be a good thing. Regulation naturally dictated by the temple and the hypogeum. This is not to say that no regulations had been in place previously, but eventually Queen Tristan agreed that a free-for-all approach to magic could be detrimental to anarchist and its interests, and thereby began investigating the best way to keep magic under control again with the temple and the hypogeum firmly in charge. The Harlandale disaster was therefore an important milestone in the formalising of magic and the relationship it had with the crown and the temple and the hypogeum. The Harlandale disaster also reflected badly on Queen Tristan as it had been under her auspices that the experiment had been conducted. Very few Anaquistian monarchs escape gossip, both in the stronghold and in Lowtown, the doings of the ruler are very much part of day-to-day chatter, with nearly everybody willing to offer an opinion or a judgment on what the Queen or King has been up to lately. Some scurrilous graffiti was splashed about Lowtown in the aftermath of the Harlandale disaster, and public opinion of Queen Tristan, which had never been high, sank. This low public opinion wasn't helped at all by the immediate outbreak of war, the second major event in the troubled last years of Tristan's reign. Arenthia at this time was at its height and probably the second most populous city in the world below the War in the Heavens. Situated on the east coast of the continent as it was, it was a natural trading partner for Anaquist, to the benefit of both. The relationship wasn't without rivalry, however, and disputes often arose over trading deals and claims on mining rights in the area between the two states and such like. If we remember episode two of this season, we covered how in the reign of Queen Vafina I, one of the pretenders to the throne, actually curried favour in Arenthia and recruited a small mercenary army there in an unsuccessful attempt to take the throne of Anaquist. The fallout from that led to deep-seated suspicion for years. 
Personalities played a part in these eruptions of ill feelings, of course, even though attempts were made to consolidate relationships with strategic marriages at times. So, after some toing and froing, war finally broke out in 297, not long after the Harlandale disaster, when the small town of Ingleby called for Anaquistian aid. Ingleby was on the trade route from Arenthia to Anaquist, a useful stopping-off point, but it was originally founded in the 150s by Anaquistians on the site of a very small heaven fort, a deeply buried fragment of a heavenly spear tip that provided decades of work and excavation before it was recovered for the temple. The town endured after that due to the, by then, established caravan trade. In 297, though, it was discovered that not all the heavenfall had been excavated and recovered, and that another sizable fragment existed just outside the town. Immediately, Arenthia annexed the town. Now, Ingleby was considerably closer to Arenthia than Anaquist, but the population, small though it was, fiercely clung to their Anaquistian roots, and once Arenthia did the deed of annexation, the people called for help from the land of their ancestors. Negotiations were swiftly entered and swiftly abandoned when the military leaders on both sides, not having had a war for a while, quickly assembled forces and marched on Ingleby, probably just so they could try out some spanking new weapon or formation or something. The residents of Ingleby fled and battle was joined between two formidable forces. The Anaquistian army was larger, possibly 10,000 troops to six or 7,000 of the Arenthians, but they'd had to march further to get there. When they arrived, the Arenthians had taken up a superior position. In a nutshell, the Anaquistians had to fight uphill. Queen Tristan was no military leader, but unlike some monarchs, she knew it and left the war to those who knew what they were doing. She made one suggestion, though, that proved a masterstroke. She proposed that the Anaquistian navy, that was stationed at Miro on the south coast of the continent, be ordered to round the coast and head north to either blockade or take Arenthia by sea. This clever ploy took nearly two weeks, a fortnight during which the two armies had fought at Ingleby, retired and fought again and again, with the reinforcements being sent from both cities. The countryside for miles about was stripped as the troops sought for supplies and carts carrying the dead and wounded replaced caravans on that trade road. In the end, Queen Tristan's tactic worked. Arenthia was blockaded, so no trade ships could get in or out, or supply ships either. The merchants of Arenthia quickly deposed the oligarchs, hanged the leaders of the army, and sued for peace. The armies returned to their respective homes, and the only result of the conflict was the obliteration of the town of Ingleby. Some years later, Percipians from the Hypogeum investigated the site of Ingleby and could find no trace of any supposed heavenfall fragment. So the entire war looks like it was fought over nothing. And if that's not a classic statement about the futility of war, I don't know what is. In 286, Queen Tristan married Marco Rethlin, member of one of the foremost aristocratic families in Avnaquist, and the first of her children, a girl, was born in 288, a month before the coronation. Sadly, the baby girl died before her first birthday. None of Tristan's four other children survived beyond the age of three, and some sort of genetic issue seems to be to blame, most likely contributed by her husband. 
Queen Treaston died in 298, aged 38, a ten-year rule. She'd probably been hoping for more, but her seething and waiting seems to have done her no good. She died of what was probably a stroke, while in the middle of trade negotiations with the representatives from Perrin. When she died, Treaston had no surviving children, as I've said, and she hadn't declared an heir either from her relations, distant or close. So once again, the succession was in chaos. Pretenders began popping up all over the place, claiming all sorts of connection to the line of descent, while nobles began canvassing support among their peers, not based on connection with the anarchist family necessarily, but simply because they were noble, which had to mean something, didn't it? Queen Treaston I, a poisoner, most likely, but not a happy one. That's all for episode 16 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, Hotch, the Boy King. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. <laughs>